section. So open up to Colossians chapter 2. I suppose that if someone were genuinely interested in coming to Christ, if they were genuinely interested in becoming a Christian, the first question they would ask would be something along the lines of, what must I do to be saved? What does it take to become a Christian? And as you think about that question, how would you answer that? What would you say to somebody to help them understand what it takes to be saved? Or suppose a new Christian, somebody who has just came to faith in Christ, comes to you and says, all right, now what? I've accepted Christ as my Savior. I've surrendered him. Now what do I need to do to stay saved? And the way that we answer those questions is very important. And what Paul here is addressing in the book of Colossians to the church in Colossae is the understanding that do you realize that Christ is exalted over all things? That's the, what we've called the book of Colossians. He is exalted over all things. And what he wants to communicate as well is a simple equation that's easy to see, hard to put into practice. The equation is this. Christ plus nothing equals everything. That's what I want to talk about this morning. Christ plus nothing equals everything. In Colossians 2, 16 through 23, our passage this morning, he is confronting some false teaching that has come their way. And we're going to deal with three big issues, three dangers that were facing the church then, three dangers that we can see in the world today. They are legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. So let's jump in the word this morning as we talk of these dangers and remind ourselves that Christ plus nothing equals everything. I'm reading Colossians 2 starting in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up with reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray this morning. Lord, thank you for the reminder this morning in worship, Lord, how deep your love is for us. And why should we gain from Christ's reward? We, we have no answer. No answer, Lord. Your grace is amazing. Your grace is sufficient. And Lord, this morning, I pray that you would give us a gift of illumination, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to your word and what it has for us, so that, Lord, if there is sin in our lives that are keeping us, from you, keeping us from growing in you, Lord, if there are things that we are trying to add to salvation, would you expose our hearts this morning? Remind us that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We have everything we need because Christ is absolutely sufficient for us. But Lord, we're tempted. We're tempted to add to salvation. We're tempted to place rules that are man-made and not God-glorifying. So, Lord, expose us this morning. 
align us with your word. Thank you that you give us your word. What a gift it is that we have your word. And so, Lord, draw us to yourself this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is our ninth week in the book of Colossians, one that we have labeled, we've kind of generalized it by saying the main focus of Paul in the book of Colossians is Christ exalted over all. Christ is to be preeminent. In other words, Christ is to have first place in all of our lives. And once again, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there are a lot of therefores throughout this book. And I'm going to say it again just so that we remember, when we see a therefore, what do we do? We see what is there for, right? Therefore is going back to something that he had already said. And what Jesus had, or what Paul had already said in Colossians 2, verse 15, you see he, dis, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them in open shame, triumphing over them in him. He went on to say how Jesus canceled the record of debt by his death on the cross, defeating his, defeating his enemies, Defeating, defeating the legal demands of the law that is put on us. He's reminding them of where they find their salvation. Look, your hope is in Jesus alone. Therefore, because your hope is in Jesus alone, he goes on. So let's just kind of recap where we've come so far. Because I think it's important for us to remember where our salvation comes from. Where we find our hope. How do we grow in Christ? Because remember, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And Paul is wanting to hit home hard. Don't lose that. Don't add to that. And we see here in the book that for all humanity, we all have the same starting point in life. We all have one main mission that we were created for. What's our mission? Glorify God. Everything we do is for the glory of God. Colossians 1.10 says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and in increasing in the knowledge of God. We were created for God. Everybody, whether you acknowledge it or not, the reason why we exist is for the glory of God. So let me ask you, how is creation doing with that? <laughs> Is the world getting it right? It's a mess, isn't it? It's clear to see something is broken. Humanity, mankind in general, is not living for the glory of God. Why is that? Well, the reason is because of sin. Sin has entered in. Luke one twenty one says that you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. He's reminding them, hey, this is where you came from. We all have the same mission. We all have the same starting point of how we're born. We're all born into this world with hostile minds. There is no neutrality. We're not born neutral. There is an idea out there that somehow we are born neutral to God. There's no neutrality. Jesus is either for us or he's against us. There's no in-between. And we are all born against God. We're all born enemies of him. Verse 13 in chapter 1, says that we were part of the domain of darkness. There's no sugarcoating for Paul. He's wanting them to remember, remember how you started. You started separated from me. And our sin has skewed everything for us. Our nature is no longer normal. We are desiring things. Our nature desires man-made things over God-made things. Our desire is for us to be God, not to come and bow down before God Almighty. It's made quite a mess because of our sin, and it has separated us from God. And we like to think maybe that somehow the separation is, is like we're wounded. And maybe I could just nurse myself back up to health. That's what some people have. Some people have this works mentality that somehow I can make myself right with God. But here's the problem. We don't have an injury problem because we're dead. We are born spiritually dead to God. Dead things can do nothing for the Lord. Dead things can't make themselves alive. Something has to happen outside of man in order for man to be made right with God. We are born dead, as verse, chapter 2, verse 13 speaks of. But there is hope outside of ourselves, amen? While we were dead, 
at the right time, Christ died for us. The second part of verse 13 in chapter 2 says that God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So Paul reminding them, remember where you were. Remember who you were apart from me. But remember, for those who have repented and placed their faith in Christ, there is salvation. What Paul is telling them and what we need to remember this morning is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In other words, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the foundation. And now Paul goes into the dangers that he's seeing that are going against the understanding that Jesus is all that we need. Look at verse 16 again. Chapter 2. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And so the first thing that we need to be aware of, that Paul wants them to be aware of, is this. Beware of legalism. Beware of legalism. So here's what was going on uh, with some people who were infiltrating this church. And there's some Jewish understanding here, some Jewish ideas of observing certain kind of what you eat and what you drink, certain kind of holidays, considering days more holier than others, observing the Sabbath. And they were making these rules and they were telling the church, hey, you, if you're a Christian, you must follow these things. These things must be true of you. If they're not, then you're not saved. And so they would have things uh, like food and, and restrictions of what you can eat. Now, if you remember the Old Testament, there were certain foods that God told the Israelites were unclean. And so one of the things that they couldn't eat was pork. I mean, it's no, wondering, it's no wonder why the Israelites were wandering through the desert for 40 years. I mean, can you imagine life without bacon? Terrible. So they weren't allowed to eat pork at the time. And there were certain people called the Nazarites. Maybe you remember Samson in the Bible. Remember Samson, the mighty warrior whose power was in his hair? Uh, he was a Nazarite, and they took a vow that they would not drink alcohol. And so what they were doing is taking these man-made rules, God gave them, but they were just for a temporary purpose, and they were making them laws. If you are a Christian, you must abstain from eating these foods, and you must abstain from drinking alcohol. No good Christian would do those things. And they're coming to them, telling them that Jesus plus these rules equals everything. Challenging everything that Paul was trying to get them to remember. Challenging and reminding them, remember where you started. Don't go away from the beginning that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not by following rules. And so let me give you a simple definition of legalism. It's this. Basing our relationship with God on our performance. Basing our relationship with God on our performance. If I do what I'm supposed to do, or if I don't do what I'm not supposed to do, then God is going to love me more. And some people would even hold to, if I do those things that I'm supposed to do and don't do what I'm not supposed to do, then God will save me. Like our salvation comes from our good works. That's legalism. That is not the gospel at all. That is not what Jesus proclaimed. It's not what Paul proclaimed. It's not what the entirety of Scripture proclaims. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so when it comes to food and drink, are there things that we're supposed to stay away from? Are there things that we're not supposed to do in order to be a Christian? Well, consider what, what Mark 7, 14 through 19 says. It says this, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside of a person, this is Jesus speaking, by the way, that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus, he declared, all foods are clean. And so, 
we can't find holiness with God based on what we eat or drink. In verse 16, it also says that they were observing certain days, festivals, new moons, Sabbaths. They were looking at days and and considering them holy, that if you did not do the Passover was one of the meals, if you did not do and observe these other days, then somehow there's no way that you could be a Christian. And then there was the Sabbath that they were calling that you must observe the Sabbath. You must take a day of rest, and you can't do anything. And if you do anything wrong on the Sabbath, then you are a sinner, and you might go to hell for that. And in the Jewish tradition, if you go to highly uh, populated Jewish areas, you might come to hotels or buildings that have elevators, and they have uh, Shabbat elevators. Have you ever heard of those? A Shabbat elevator is an elevator that has no buttons. So on the Sabbath day, uh, one of the things that was against the law is to operate electronical things. And so Shabbat elevators would allow you to be able to go on any floor. You just step in the elevator. It stops on every single floor. And then you just have to get out when the doors open. That's a little bit extreme, isn't it? That somehow that would make us holy. That somehow God would love us more by observing these things. Consider what Mark 22, 23 through 28 says about the Sabbath. So, again, the Sabbath was a day where you remember how God created and then he rested. Well, we are supposed to rest according to the Sabbath. But this is what Jesus says about the Sabbath. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And he said to them, have you never read of what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with them. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So what the people were doing is saying that you must take a day of rest. Like you don't be pushing buttons, don't be doing any works. You can't do anything to make food. You should have had that made the night before. What are you doing making food? How are you pulling a grain of wheat off of a plant? Somehow that's work. You see the extremes that, that they were going through in order to declare that somebody was holier than what they really were. Now, here's the thing, though. Is it wrong for somebody to choose to abstain from certain foods? Somebody wants to go through a sugar fast. Is that a legalistic thing? What if somebody decides that, you know what, I'm going to abstain from alcohol? Is that necessarily something that is wrong? Or somebody who wants to observe the Sabbath? wants to make sure they take a day of rest. Is somehow that always legalistic? I would say absolutely not. The issue isn't living with those kind of principles. The issue is is taking those principles and saying, if you are a believer in Christ, you must follow these things. A huge difference. Now, my wife and I, we have made the decision to abstain from alcohol. But we don't put that in anybody else. There is freedom as long as you aren't being taken over by alcohol to drink it. It's just our personal choice. The problem would be if we were to say, church, you are not allowed to drink alcohol. You're a sinner and you're going to hell if you do. That's essentially what they were doing. They were adding things to Jesus. Now, here's the thing. We, we may look at that and think, well, Sabbath, uh, yeah, that's definitely, you know, the Sabbath was made to help us not to be a burden. We weren't made to obey the Sabbath. Yeah, of course I get that. I don't, I, that's ridiculous. I wouldn't do that. Of course we can eat whatever we want to and, and drink whatever we want to in moderation. Yeah, it's crazy. And so we could easily look at this and think, well, I don't struggle with legalism. Let's go on to the next thing. But let me just share some things that sadly I have heard from the mouths of Christians via social media. Things such as this. How can you call yourself a Christian and vote for Biden? I've heard this. How can you call yourself a Christian and vote for Trump? How can you call yourself a Christian and support mandatory masks? 
How can you call yourself a Christian and not support mandatory masks? Don't you care about people? How can you send your kid to public school? Well, how can you shelter your kids in homeschool and Christian schools? You have to spend this amount of time in prayer in the word. And the reality is there are numerous things that we can add to Jesus as if we have to vote a certain way in order to be a Christian. Let me just reiterate, is it wrong to have political preferences? I'd say absolutely not. God has given us a brain to think. We need to bring it all back to Scripture. And if I could just say this without getting thrown out of the church, I think there are some Democratic policies that are right, and I think there are Republican policies that are getting right, and I think the Republican Party is jacked up, and I think the Democratic Party is jacked up. Can I get an amen? There's one thing that holds true through all of the mess of the world, and that is the scriptures. And yet, Christian, I have fallen guilty in some of those things that I've read. We can hold our preferences up to a place. Good things, they may be good things. But when we make them God things, we are stepping over the line and becoming legalistic. Jesus plus nothing equals Everything. As you think of that, do you know of any areas in your life where you may be adding to it? And how the world is responding to COVID. Can we just acknowledge that nobody really knows what's going on? (laughs) When you have science that supports both sides, like as Christians, we need to, it's okay to have an opinion. It's not okay to make your opinion the Bible unless it points directly to Scripture. Don't let your preferences become something that you are enforcing on others as if their relationship with God is based on those things. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Beware of the danger of legalism. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. I have to go back. I missed verse 17. Look at that real quick. We'll wrap up that first section. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So, back to legalism. The reason why having certain beliefs aren't necessarily bad. Observing the Sabbath Observing those holidays, abstaining from certain kind of food, was, a, was an opportunity for the Jewish people to be separated, just as we as Christians are separated. But they're a shadow. They're supposed to be a reflection of the substance. The, the reflection, the shadow is not the main thing. The substance is the main thing. And the substance is Christ. They're only to reflect Christ. Christ came. We don't need to observe those things in order to earn favor or anything. They were just a symbol for us to help us understand. All right, back to verse 18. Let's do that again. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Not only are we to beware of legalism, but we are to beware of mysticism. Beware of mysticism. So let me give you... Uh, a definition of that, because that could be kind of a tricky thing to understand. Mysticism is this. The belief that direct knowledge of God can be attained through subjective experiences such as intuition or insight. So it's people claiming that they have a special relationship with God that's outside of anything that any normal person could do. And somehow it elevates them to superiority because they're having visions, they're having dreams, they're talking with God, literally, they're hearing the literal voice of God, things like that. Now, I think God moves in mysterious ways. I think there is a mystical side of God. But the problem is, is, is that people get so caught up in the mystical that they miss what we have right in front of our eyes. Do you remember about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there was a time period where the world just went crazy over these people, these kids who were going to heaven. Do you remember that? Like this kid, uh, heaven is, is for real or something like that was one of the books. 
Well, there was a book entitled The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven that was written uh, in 2010. It was a story of a boy and his father. They were driving to church on one Sunday morning and on their way home. I think they were new to the area. And there was like a dangerous intersection that they were unaware of. And they crossed it. They got T-boned. The dad threw, got flown out of the car. He ended up being okay. But the son found himself in serious condition to the point where his skull had separated from his spine. But amazingly, through it all, the son survived, and he recovered. And he shared this experience of him going to heaven. Six years after that is when they wrote the book. Sold a million copies. But it was shortly after that where the boy came out as an adult saying that was all a lie. Here's the thing. Could one of these kids have really gone to heaven or had a vision of an experience? Maybe. But the thing is, with these things, they're so subjective. How can we look at Scripture and decide whether or not it's true? We just don't know. And yet, the world got swept up, and millions and millions of copies of of these kind of books were sold because people are so fascinated with the mystical. So fascinated, wanting to have this extraterrestrial experience with God. That somehow, if I could just do that, then God would become more real to me. And we become so dependent and so desperate that we'll do everything that we can to believe, to try to experience these things. And we even see here in this passage that they were worshiping angels. Again, the mystical. This idea that we're entertaining angels, which is absolutely true. It's in scripture. But we can become so fascinated with angels that we care more about angels than we do about Jesus. But do you know what the angels have to say about that? Let me just read some scriptures from you of what the angels would say about worshiping other angels. In the year that King Uzziah died from Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. Why do you think he covered his face? Because they could not be in the presence of God and stare at him in his face. And with two, he covered his feet. Why do you think he covered his feet? It's because of his creatureliness. He was a created being. He was covering his feet because he was in the presence of almighty, holy God. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What happens when angels worship angels? Satan happens. Satan was an angel. Revelation 5, 11 and 12 says this. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What were the angels created for? They were created to worship God just as we are. We are. There's no room to be worshiping and lifting up angels. We lift up Jesus alone. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So what's the heart of the problem when it comes to mysticism, when it comes to these things? What am I getting at? It's right here in the text. The problem is in verse 19. They were not holding fast to the head. From whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Do you want a deep, meaningful, powerful, spiritual experience? Get to know your Savior through the word of God. Listen, the reason why there are so many people who are spectacularly dissatisfied with God is because this book sits on their shelf Monday through Saturday. And then Sunday morning, they're shuffling around trying to find, where did I leave my Bible? Oh, yeah, the last place I left it when I came home Sunday and put it on that shelf. Do you find yourself dissatisfied in your life? The question is, are you connected to the head? You don't need a dream. You don't need a vision. You don't need a special presence of God. I have never heard the literal voice of God. 
but I've sensed his presence through his word. And I've heard his word speak to me because I've memorized it. I've studied it. I've let it dwell in my heart. I've let it take hold of me. And so when I say the Lord speaks to me, what I say is I have learned who this Jesus is through his word. And his spirit has brought his scriptures to my memory when I need it. Don't get caught up as if you need some supernatural experience with God. Supernatural experiences happen when we allow the scriptures to dwell within us. But don't expect to have that if you don't open your Bibles except on Sunday mornings. I don't say that to bring judgment. Let me make it very clear. We aren't saved because we read the Bible. We aren't saved because we memorize scripture. We aren't saved because we pray. But here's the reality. We get to know our Jesus, and Jesus takes over us the more we allow his word to dwell within us. This is not a book of rules. That's legalism. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Amen? He didn't come to put more rules on you. That's what we get so tripped up over. That's legalistic. He came to free us from those things. Consider what John 15, 4 and 5 says. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you add to Jesus in salvation, you can do nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything we need. Are you abiding in Christ? Are you opening up the word of God? Are you spending time with your Savior to get to know him? Not as a checklist. That's what we do, right? Like, oh, I read my Bible today. I read through the Bible in a year. Check it off. That's great. It's a great practice. But if all we're doing is to say that we read through the Bible in a year, that's nothing more than legalism. It's for freedom that he set us free. Are you searching for joy outside of the simple practice of opening up his word and praying? His spirit moves powerfully through his word. The scripture says his divine power has given us everything we need through life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We have everything we need, all the knowledge we will ever need through Christ, through his word. Beware of mysticism. And we see our last warning in verse 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The last thing that we need to be aware of is this. Beware of asceticism. Beware of asceticism. We saw that earlier in the passage in verse 18. We see it here again in 23. That's a big word. I am not an English major. I married an English major so that I wouldn't have to worry about those things. I'm a math people. Anybody with me? Amen, math people. Asceticism. What does it mean? It means this. It's extreme self-denial of physical or psychological desires in order to earn favor with God. And the Greek word here is actually the same word for humility. It has the appearance of humility. It's this self-denial. I'm going to do without food, drink. I'm not going to sleep. I'm going to make myself poor. I'm not going to have any social interactions. I'm not going to be a part of any sexual activity. I'm not going to get married. And all of these things, they looked at as what would help them to get in favor with God. As if this false humility of ripping everything aside would make God love them more. And so they would fast. And in their fasting, they would have heavy faces. You know, have you ever fasted? I mean, I hate fasting, to be honest. It's like one of the hardest things to do. I skip a meal and I'm like, 
hangry all the time, you know. But like the scriptures say, when you're fasting, don't let the world know, right? But they, these people would let the world know, I'm fasting, I'm doing this for this reason. And, you know, they would, oh, it's so hard, and I haven't had food for five days, and man, it's really, I'm really struggling. They would just let everybody know around them how hard of a struggle it is. Now, is fasting a good practice, potentially? Yeah, it could be a great practice to have our hearts turned to the Lord, but not for the world to know about it. And certainly, God doesn't love us more if we fast this week. He doesn't love us less if we don't. And some of them would be obsessed with poverty. I, I see this today, too, and, I, and I, I, I've, I've never had much money. And so it, it has been a temptation for me in the past to look at those who have a lot and try to find some kind of judgmental attitude towards them as if because they have a lot of money and I don't, that I'm somehow better than them. And I see some people who will strip away everything and live this impoverished life and expecting everybody else to join them. Why aren't you living poor? Why are you holding on to all this stuff? When no, you don't know their hearts anyway. I have met some of the most selfish, poorest people in the world. I've also met some of the most humble, gracious, giving, rich people. It's not about what you look like on the outside. It's about the heart. Some of them would stay unmarried thinking that, you know, we can get this idea, and I, I, I've had this too, where fun is not allowed in the church. <laughs> you ever been around people like, you can't have any fun. Unless you're laughing at how dumb the devil is, then, then you can have some fun. Like we can think that somehow if we enjoy doing life together, that, or if we have an activity, let's say we have a church function where there's no spiritual component to it necessarily, that somehow that's a wrong thing for a church to do. We can get so crazy with this that we have to strip down everything and make our lives miserable. Does that sound like freedom to you? I'm not saying that, like, we should all go make as much money as we can and just buy whatever we want to. That's not the point here. The point is don't make something that might be a good thing a God thing. It's not godly to be poor. It's not necessarily ungodly either. It's wrong when you take something and say, if you're a Christian, this is the way you have to live. Do you know what it takes to be a Christian? Repent and believe. Repent of your sin. Put your faith in Christ. That's where salvation comes from. Anything else added to that, if we want to add any other titles to that, we are falling guilty. We are guilty of the same false teachers who have entered the church here in Colossians. So what is the problem of all these things? What is at the heart of legalism? What's at the heart of mysticism? What's at the heart of asceticism? Look at verse 23 again. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. So they sound good, right? Like, I, I could be tempted to have some respect for those who live the way they do. And certainly I think there's times where it's worthy of respect. I could be tempted to think, man, this, this is the way I should live. I got too much stuff. I, I need to sell everything I have. These are extremes that we can go to if we aren't careful. The problem is at the end of verse 23. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So let me break it down for you. What does that mean? They're, they don't stop the indulgences of the flesh. I have fasted. I have gone on diets over and over again. But you know what, like, happens almost every time? I go back to the stuff I shouldn't eat. <laughs> I've, I've lost more weight than what I weigh right now, probably. <laughs> Because we can all day long, anybody can make the choice that I'm going to refrain from eating. I'm not going to drink alcohol. Anybody can do that, whether your heart is right with the Lord or not. Anybody can try to seek a spiritual deep thing with angels and try to do seances or whatnot. Anybody can choose to obey the Sabbath and to not do any work on there. Anybody, no matter what the heart is. Anybody can make rules. And expect you to follow them. But these are all external. 
These are all outside of us. We don't need the world to change. Do you realize the problem is not those around you? The problem is not your environment. The problem is not the house that you were raised in or the parents who raised you. The problem is your own heart. The problem is the sin that is within us. The reason why these things are fruitless is because they don't get to the heart. So believers in Christ, have you put rules on religion? Have you made any kind of rules in your life that you would just put blanket statements of, you can only vote this way if you're a Christian. You can only go to this kind of school. You can only make this amount of money. Go down the line. There are a million different things that we can make. Do you find yourself there this morning? My encouragement, if God is revealing anything, to repent. Be free from that. When we put those rules in place and make them God things, isn't life miserable? Because you're looking it around and you're seeing You're seeing people not voting the way you think they should vote, not standing for what you think they should stand for. But what happens when Jesus is everything to us, and we don't want anything else but Jesus, and we see people who aren't living for Jesus? Does that make you angry, or does it crush you? Isn't it better to be heartbroken over people who don't see the hope in Jesus than it is to be angry because they're not believing the same things you do? If you find yourself angry at people, chances could be that Paul is speaking of you. Your heart broken for the lost because you care far more about Jesus than you do about who's in office. Christ is our one true hope. Maybe there are some of you here who are unbelievers And you are relating to some of the things I've talked about. Maybe you're one of those where you're refraining to be a Christian because you see all the hypocrisy. And let me just say, we're all hypocrites. (laughs) Whenever anybody says, I don't want to go to church, they're full of a bunch of hypocrites. And I'm like, you're right, and there's room for one more. (laughs) Is there any person in all of creation who gets it right every time? Is there any person who lives what they believe 100% of the time? would say no. But here's what I can say. There's far more hope in Jesus than what this world has to offer. You've tasted and seen that the world is not good. We have hope for us awaiting. It may not be fulfilled here. We may suffer until Jesus comes, but one day he's coming and he's going to erase every tear. He's going to right every wrong. And we will be rejoicing with him forever. So what's holding you back? What's keeping you from repenting and turning to Christ? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope of your word. These are hard truths, Lord. My heart has hurt this week in seeing the hypocrisy in my life. In seeing the things that I believe at times, the things that I have thought that go against your word, that I am trying to say that you must look a certain way to be a Christian, Lord, and I repent of those things. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who, I pray that if there is indwelling sin in these areas that you would, Lead them to repentance. Lord, your loving kindness leads us to repentance. Lord, would you show them their faultiness? Would you bring that weight on them? But Lord, then would you release them, Lord, as they confess you are faithful to forgive. And God, I pray for those who are wrestling with their faith. Maybe they just don't know about this whole Jesus thing. Maybe they do see how broken the world is, but they also see how broken the church is. God, would you remind them, don't look at the church, look at Jesus. He's the only one who got it right every time. He's the only one who was not a hypocrite. So Lord, give us more of Jesus. Help Jesus be exalted over all. Let him captivate our hearts. He's the one who's rescued us from our sin, our greatest problem. Lord, thank you that you 
are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And even if we find ourselves in a mess this morning, we've been hit upside the head. We know that we can confess. We don't like our sin. We don't rejoice over it. We're crushed over it. But you lift us up through your word, through, through the grace of Jesus. Your grace is amazing. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I thought what a perfect opportunity for us to be reminded that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And then after that, to be able to take the elements and remember Christ's sacrifice for us. Remember that it was the sacrifice of Christ plus nothing else that makes us right with him. Amen? No other rules do we add to that. And so let me encourage you, we should not take communion lightly. Uh, This is for believers only. So if you are uncertain of where you stand with God or you know you're an unbeliever, feel free to just stand where you're at. No need. You need to get out of the way for somebody. Feel free to do that. There's no shame. There's no judgment. If you find yourself in indwelling sin that you just can't get over this morning and you're really needing to take some time to repent, the best thing for you may be to just take a seat or stand there and pray and skip communion this time. We're not saved by taking communion either. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So we're doing this to remember him. So let me invite you to stand. Zach's going to lead us in a song. If you want to take the opportunity to pray and not sing, feel free to do that. I'm going to dismiss you by rows. I'll come up the middle. Everybody come out the middle to your side up front here. Grab the elements. Go to the outside to get back to your seats. And then after the song, we'll come back and we'll take the elements together. So let's sing together now.
nothing else, nothing else, nothing else will do. I just want you, nothing else, nothing else, Jesus, nothing else will do. I just want you, nothing else, nothing else, Jesus, nothing else will do. I'm caught up in your presence. I just want to sit here at your feet. I'm caught up in this holy moment. I never want to leave. I'm not Jesus, you don't owe me anything more than anything that you could do. I just want you. Let's get it one more time. Nothing else. Nothing else. Nothing else. Nothing else will do. I just want you. Nothing else will satisfy your heart. And if we try to add anything to Jesus, we will be dissatisfied. Jesus plus nothing everything we have, everything we need, we find in Christ. Be mindful of what you try to add. Why do we remember communion? It's not because it's just something that churches do. It's because we are tempted to have our eyes taking off of Jesus and placed on other things. Last week we talked about what captivates your heart. I don't know about you, there are other things this week that have captivated my heart besides Christ. And so this morning we remember what Jesus, he paid the price on the cross for our sins so that we would be made right with him. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. That's why we take communion. And this is what it says in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He goes on to say, Paul does, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's our message, right? Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the grave. We're called to proclaim that to the masses who need it. Let me pray. We're going to jump into one more song reminding us of the goodness of who God is, the goodness of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that Jesus paid the price that we could not. We were left with a debt that could not be paid for. We could spend the rest of eternity doing good things and it would not be enough because of our sinfulness. And at the right time, when we were still sinners, Jesus died for us that we may be, right, be made right with you. Lord, captivate our hearts this week. Remind us of the good news of Jesus. Break our hearts for the lost. Renew us. Thank you, Lord. You are good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing this song together.